Onassis Foundation. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis LA and Dublab. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. It's a real pleasure to be here today to talk about a magnificent book, but much more than a book, a whole state of mind, a whole moment in our culture. And to do this for the quarantine tapes, I'm really delighted that Andrew Zuckerman, Spencer Bailey, and Simon Critchley are part of the quarantine tapes, which is co-presented by Dublab and Onassis LA. So we're here to talk about this really magnificent I believe, symphonic book called At a Distance, A Hundred Visionaries at Home in a Pandemic. I have to say immediately that being part of this conversation could seem self-serving. Because you're in it. <laughs> because I'm in it. Yeah. But you're only one. I'm only one of the visionaries, but mm. here we actually have two visionaries. Yeah. We, we have 2%. Have, we have yeah. 2%. We have Simon Critchley and yeah. myself as a visionary. How does it feel actually to be called a visionary, Simon? Uh, yeah, she suits me very well. Yeah? Yeah. You, 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 it's a role you like? It's, I mean, I'm, it's, I'm, ta- it's taken a while. It's not the first time. It can't be the first you've time. You've earned it. I've earned it. I feel very happy about being called a visionary. I, I, I must say it, it was very surprising to me and it might, might have taken a while, but I still can't quite get used to it. But I think we're going to be speaking about what this moment affords us, really what this moment affords us. And I am very intrigued and I want to ask both Andrew and Spencer to help me understand what the title of the book actually means at a distance. Let me add by saying that are we at a sufficient distance to be speaking about the moment we have gone through and are still going through? And what is the right distance to really evaluate a moment? Are we at the moment to be seeing what we just went through from a distance? No, we're at the beginning of walking towards that space. And I think the function of the book in many ways was to help through that process. We're not out of a pandemic. We're out of a lockdown. We could go back into a lockdown any day. Mm -hmm. But I think we've all kind of caught up with the idea of this is different than where we were on March 27th, 2020, when we did our first interview. And I think that, you know, when we started this book, we were just in the beginning phases of understanding what it means to be at a distance for the first time ever. This was a new concept. So the book in many ways excavates what that means and what happens in that space. Spencer, do you have any further thoughts about this? I think one of the things I feel is worth bringing up when you're talking about at a distance is the role of the screen, especially during the pandemic. Right in lockdown, Andrew had already headed upstate and we were looking at each other from a screen after having worked together in the same space day to day for a year. And so to go from that 
intimacy of being in the same physical space to all of a sudden not being able to like smell, touch, hear in the same way. It's all coming through a computer and through a screen. That distance, the technological distance kind of shifted a lot of how we felt and I think how everybody was feeling. The, the, the phrase Zoom fatigue became a very quick early pandemic. Cogito ergo Zoom, I heard people say. Zoom schmerz. Yeah, Zoom schmerz. It's yeah. really good. But it is kind of a philosophical question, is it not, uh, oh, Simon? Yes. The idea of what is a necessary distance to evaluate something. Mm-hmm. Yep. Philosophy requires distance. But collapsing distance momentarily I just remember this now, that I was going to come into the studio, I think in March 2020, mm. and do a, a time sensitive. Our other oh, podcast. yeah, we've been talking about yep. Yep, sitting there and, and I, do that. I think we had a date scheduled, and then this all happened, and then we were, then you very rapidly, and I remember this, you moved to the At A Distance, and you gave it the name At A Distance. That then began very quickly, as the quarantine tapes did too nearly the same date. The first interview of the quarantine tapes was Henry Rollins, who I had interviewed just before the lockdown on the 7th of March at the Ola House. A few people who were supposed to come that evening didn't. And we thought, I mean, really, they're silly. I mean, there's something going around, but Mm -hmm. it isn't really uh, uh, something very dangerous. And one week later, on the 12th of March, we all remember these dates. And we might talk about the the sense of time in a moment. We all remember these dates. They're imprinted on our uh, psyche, as it were. 12th of March, everything stopped. The 13th of March, everything closed, at least in in Los Angeles. And the first quarantine tape was Werner Herzog on the 20th. 24th of March. I was very jealous of your name. Holden Graber? <laughs> no, Quarantine Tapes. Quarantine Tapes. <laughs> when I heard that, I thought, God, God we could have called it that. Yeah, the quarantine, I mean, Suckerman and Holden Graber, and if we add Finkelkraut and Schimmelbusch, <laughs> exactly. we can have a law firm. But coming back to my philosophical question for a moment, since mm-hmm. we do have the advantage of having a real philosopher here amongst us now and a visionary, this notion, yeah, of, this notion of distance mm-hmm. to evaluate is so important. And I've been thinking about that because in a way... This is memory in the present, mm. right? Yeah. This is memory in the present, and it's called At a Distance, which is, I think, an extremely good name, maybe not quite as good as the quarantine tapes, but nevertheless. <laughs> mm. um, it is, I, I'm just trying to understand what is the right distance to be eva- able to evaluate a historical moment. Well, that we won't know for a, a long time, because I think about one thing that haunts me is the fact that you know, the First World War, we remembered more or less well, depends where you're from and all of that, but it was remembered more or less well, it's memorialized, and we forgot the Spanish flu. Just kind of passed us by. And, we we uh, talk about that in, in the book and, and with some of the guests. I remember Michael Murphy, who's the architect that designed the Memorial for Peace and Justice, we brought it up with him, like some of the amnesia that led us here. Mm-hmm is because there was no memorial to the Spanish flu, no real proper memorial. I think there's like a little stone in a cemetery in Vermont somewhere, and that's that's about it. So we're, w- w- there was no way to collectively remember that event. 
a lot of it was lost to time. So the Spanish flu was forgotten, we f and we forgot about plague. We forgot the way in which uh, plague is central to when human beings gather together in villages, towns, and cities, there's going to be plague, and plague's going to move from place to place, and that's defined whatever we want to associate with civilization for as long as human beings have been gathered in towns and cities. And um, remembering that is important. Will we forget that again? I don't know. I hope not. Uh, the, the philosophical side of it is the the fact that it depends, you know, the different ways of answering that. But one of the most popular books, one of the most continually read books in history was Boethius's Consolations of Philosophy. Continuously read, not like Plato and Aristotle that came in and out, depending on whether we had the the translations from the, the Arab world and all that. But the Boethius was always there, but Boethius was written in a prison cell. And philosophy appears to Boethius in a prison cell, and then he's he's bludgeoned to death by the Ostrogoth Emperor Theodoric sometime later. But before he's bludgeoned to death, he gets the time to think about philosophy in a cell in solitude and to find a consolation therein. And you know, we were thrown into little cells of our of our choosing, sometimes with family, sometimes without family and um, forced to ponder. You know? And that's where the name came from. I mean, at a distance, it's interesting because we're talking about two different things. What's the time that you can span away from to consider where you were from? But what we were focused on with the title was the space itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think a lot about this idea and I've talked a lot about the idea of the overview effect, what astronauts deal with when they're circling the Earth and how it takes that necessary physical distance mm -hmm. to understand the earth as a whole. And so the impetus for the name and the podcast was very much about us climbing into our own spaceships, looking out at the world <laughs> and having this overview effect on what we were experiencing or something close to it. So that was the idea. You know, how do we have this kind of whole earth perspective in that moment and how useful will that be later? You know, we thought this thing will be over in a month yeah, and it turned into still recording today. The strange thing, the, the peculiar thing is what slowed down media was set up in 20... We launched publicly in uh, May 2019. That was... Mm -hmm. So, and to be a company called The Slowdown and then find ourselves in a global slowdown was... I guess we expected some sort of slowdown, but we didn't anticipate a pandemic by any means, which goes back to the cultural amnesia around pandemics. And that's one of the central foci of what you've been doing over the in-time sensitive and at a distance is to get people to slow down and think in a situation of ever-increasing velocity and intensity and the pressure of reality, the felt pressure of reality, which often isn't real, but it feels like things are impinging on us. And to, you know... As Wittgenstein says, what does one philosopher say to another philosopher? Take your time. I love that. So and you much. take, you, you slow down, you take time, and then suddenly the whole world is forced to slow down. How will that stick? What will stay? I mean, it's interesting seeing this book, to say the least, because I, I'm thinking about it in terms of the dates and times, and then meeting with Spencer. Because the other thing that happened was the. <laughs> Uh, I didn't we're see neighbors. Andrew for a, a good long time because you were you were upset. But because Spencer lives in my neighbourhood, I had a tiny circle of friends uh, in my vicinity, and uh, 
Spencer I saw frequently and I was listening to him talk this thing through and thinking, you know, and then, then here it is. Think, oh, that's pretty good. But it feels terrible. So I'm not sure there is enough distance yet. It feels terribly close to me. Mm-hmm. Well, for some um, reason, we were obsessed with having it come out right now. Mm-hmm. To the point where we would do anything we could to finish it in time. In time. In time. What, what does that mean? In this moment, yeah. before 2021 we ended. We felt the urgency. There was a huge urgency. And, and there's this sort of irony that, like, as the slowdown, we did not slow down in the slowdown. We recorded 100 of these episodes last year on top of everything else we were doing. And I think the intensity of that was that we felt an urgency, that we needed to capture this now. Because a lot of this thinking wasn't going to be as palpably felt a year later. The conversation was going to shift, and it did. The kind of conversations we have on At A Distance Now don't carry some of the same urgency that they carried in March, April 2020. I'll come back to that in a moment also by reading back to to Simon something that Simon said himself urgently at that moment and see how he feels about it now. But before I come to that, I want to read a little passage that I I know is very dear to both of you that seems to me um, wonderful for us to, as it were, unpack by Bessel van der Kolk. He writes, I would call this pandemic a pre-traumatic situation that is likely to traumatize and re-traumatize people. Trauma is a situation where you feel completely helpless in the face of what's going on and there's nothing you can do to ward things off. I'd like you to to further the thinking that you hear in these words. I think it's so interesting, and especially when you think back at the origin of the word trauma itself. I've got something to say about that. Because Best of Anacol, that was one of the books, I think, because of... Body Keeps the Score. Yeah, Body Keeps the Score, I read during lockdown. And I was, um, as many people were, in people in this room indeed, I was experiencing the weirdest hypochondriac episodes throughout a lot of last year. I won't bore anybody with details, but you began to think, well, what's the relationship between this psychic bit of me and this physical bit of me? And why is my body doing this? What score is it keeping? This seems like a really strange, erratic score. And so that led me to really think about the relationship between mind and body is too easy, but the psychical and the physical elements of what it means to be human. I think a lot of people went through that. Everyone reacted in different ways in terms of the spectrum of hypochondria. And we had such little information knowing what was and, and what wasn't. we still do, it feels like it. Yeah. In that moment that we're talking about, people were washing, bleaching their vegetables, basically. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. This was a moment where we'd, we had no understanding. <laughs> you know, I got COVID end of February, didn't know it until maybe April or May when I had an antibody test. What was so crazy was I had it, I got it pretty bad, and we didn't have a mask, we didn't quarantine, my children and my wife didn't get it. We had no understanding of what was, how it traveled and and what it was. But back to your question, Paul, about trauma or, or the suggestion you're making to talk about, if anyone's ever experienced a real trauma in their life, which I think many people have to some degree. Hard to be alive without it. Breathing becomes the thing that goes first. You know, you can't catch your breath, basically. Mm -hmm. 
and your body is, your limbic system is on overdrive and the cortisol is flooding through you. And that stays for a long time. So the trauma itself is one thing, but the triggers that recreate that feeling come back a lot. What I found interesting was that at the beginning of the pandemic, I felt that we were in a collective trauma that I kind of felt like, oh, now everyone's had the rug pulled mm -hmm. and now everyone's in something together. And this period of extreme divisiveness and extreme separation of people that we've been experiencing during the Trump years, there was finally something that brought us together and put us on the same page. What was showed further the differences between us in terms of socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That was a great line. We're not in the same boat. We're all in different boats. We're in the same storm. Because at the beginning, a lot of people were talking about being in the same boat. Uh, but that was quickly corrected. Hypochondria is very interesting. The fact that you can know it's hypochondria. Right? You know that what you're experiencing, what you're seeing on your body, let's say, a rash or whatever, mm. you know it's not real. And maybe you went to a dermatologist to get confirmation <laughs> of that. And the dermatologist says, maybe you should read Bessel van der Kolk. <laughs> yeah, but trauma's <laughs> felt, not thought. You could be watching a movie and be scared, and someone say, that's an actor, and that's fake blood, and it doesn't change the way you feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also has a repetitive pattern. So, if you know, trauma is, it's a word that's overused, let's say overused, but the way I think about this is you think back to your friend and my friend, Sigmund Freud. Our friend. Freud was convinced of one thing in his entire theorizing as a doctor and thinker until he wasn't, which was that the human organism was governed by the pleasure principle. And the pleasure principle is the maintenance of excitation in the organism or the lowering of it, that we want to feel the same or less, and that's pleasure. And that's what we, as organisms, are directed towards. We're keyed in towards that. And then, this goes back to memory, he was faced with the issue of uh, war neurosis. How was it that people in the First World War who were experiencing shell shock seemed to be exhibiting these repetitive, compulsive twitching and physical effects and having these terrible nightmares and reliving constantly this trauma of being in the, the Somme or wherever it was. And he came to the conclusion that indeed there was something that was overriding the pleasure principle, which was the compulsion to repeat. The compulsion to repeat is stronger than pleasure. And that repetition is felt on the body. How interesting when he talks about re-traumatize. Mm. I thought that was a perfectly expressed idea. And this book that I don't know at all by someone whose name I'll try not to say correctly, Bina Venkantaraman, who writes, even in times of crisis, I like that, even mm. in times of crisis, I try to take the long view. How can a moment be seen through the lens of history? How can you think about it as an opportunity for dramatic change? And that, I, I think, is for me, in a sense, the core of our conversation. Mm -hmm. What will emerge if we think that Arundhati Roy is right? Is it a portal? And if it is a portal, it's a portal towards what? And, and there, I'll direct a lot of this in a moment to, to Simon, because I know for Simon, ideas of 
portals and hope are complicated, but I'm curious how you react to that comment a year and a half later at a distance. Well, I should say that Bina is one of these people that that are the reason we do what we do. Mm. There are people like Bina out there who are thinking in this way, who are not having an opportunity in, in their mainstream communications or uh, certainly not collectively put together within the context of the others. There's a lot of disparate thinkers who are thinking this way that aren't brought together. And what the slowdown's intention was is to locate these people and curate them together to show that there's a movement happening. They just don't necessarily know about each other. Right. And that's why reading this book together, as I said, is symphonic because they're all these voices. And I, I don't know exactly what the symphony is, whether it's Bruckner or Strauss or Beethoven, but it's, it's definitely symphonic. It's a period of time where there's a lot of difference in opinion and difference in thought, but a kind of... Um, An organized web of obsessions. Yeah, and a, a perspective on life that somehow stitches together. What Bean is talking about, the long view, and having the perspective of the long view in that moment is what got us through the pandemic. You know, every day we were focused on this moment in time. You know, if you think about the early days, we're talking about Tiger King, which felt like, you know, Trump's mirror. Yeah. We're talking about massive misinformation happening everywhere. You know, I had this obsession at that time of going from like, OAN to CNN to Fox. Every night I was cruising like the gamut mm -hmm. of punditry. And in reality, none of it was long view. In fact, over the course of the evening, things would change and opinions would change, information would change. What we were really focused on and what I was kind of obsessed with in that moment was what are the cracks? What are, that was a very philosophical thing, right? Where where the the Heideggerian cut, where are the cracks? Where's mm -hmm. the rupture that we can grab and capture? For the long view, what does this represent? Where's the opportunity here? Why do we have the permission to think differently in this moment? And what can we see projectively looking forward? Mm. You, know, you know, obviously that's where she was at. I feel like, too, what's interesting is, you know, with the podcast format, you listen to one episode and it's a sort of mini portal. You, you go into it and experience it and hopefully you come out on the other end having learned something. I think the book is actually the sort of portal of what you speak. It becomes something that has a myriad of perspectives of voices. I would like to think that people who actually sit down and read the entire book, whether they do so in a bunch of different sittings or however, they come away a different person or have a different point of view than when they went into reading the book. That's, I think, what a portal does. Is it? We always best. knew it would be a book. Yeah. Really? Before the first recording of the first podcast, we said, you know, we were sitting there, we, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were thinking... Oh, maybe we should stick to themes, so then we could we could create a larger conversation overall by by having people that were not physically in conversation. Maybe we can create a conversation between them um, by sort of remixing it if we thematically mm -hmm. approached it. We were looking at all these ideas, knowing that the form it would take would be a a composite, and that the podcast itself was kind of us doing it publicly was us like kind of working on this project publicly in many ways. Somewhere along the way, that question, what's your greatest hope as we emerge from this? The last question we tended to ask most guests, that just sort of emerged out of our conversations. It wasn't some pre-scripted thing. It just sort of made sense. Like we want people to leave with some sense of hope 
And I never liked the question, to be honest. I always thought yeah. it's such a, it's such a <laughs> dumb thing to ask someone. Like I would never want to be asked that. But somehow we got the best answers out of it. Mm -hmm. So like it was this question we were both kind of embarrassed to ask a little bit. <laughs> it seemed very elementary. It Trite, seemed very yeah. yeah. It just didn't <laughs> seem right. But you know what? What it triggered, and often you know you learn this in directing, how you draw out a response can can almost be embarrassing. Mm -hmm. And it's that I know. I know the feeling. It's sort of sycophantic. At a moment approach. when we're all feeling so hopeless, it actually becomes a sort of interesting conceit to talk about. It's like the one thing everyone's kind of like reaching for. And there's that great story. Whenever you pitch a film, you if if you end the meeting with, well, ultimately it's about hope, and then you leave, you get financing. <laughs> That's my worry with hope. Yeah. It's kind of the, you know, the mood music at the end of the movie, <laughs> up it comes and there you are. Or it's, um, you know, it's it's Barack Obama in the Mile High Stadium in Colorado erasing. And uh, you can see that, that look in people's eyes and he's got them with the audacity of hope. Mm. And for me, that feels fraudulent. Mm -hmm. I'm anti-hope. Yeah, I, I I know, and that's against hope. Do we ask you that question? We did. We definitely uh, asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you, you, one should quickly say that this book is highly edited, but in ways that are just compelling because the, there's so many fabulous haikus in it and fabulous footnotes, and the way it's crafted is really uh, rather masterfully done. You begin your visionary segment by saying, I'm not one of life's optimists. Yeah. The situation that we're in is really disappointing. <laughs> and that's fine. I love that first sentence. What people are feeling, the fear, the anxiety, the sense of mortality, of terror, these are terrible things. But they're things that can be used, and they're better than the self-protective counterfeit immortality that people were living in, and the feeling of invulnerability that people had before COVID-19. I couldn't have put that better myself. <laughs> but that's kind of what I was saying about the trauma thing, is mm. that's basically the same thing. That's how I felt that there's a kind of honesty to us all being together in this, mm -hmm. and it's useful. Mm -hmm. But then with hope, it's the... the uh, What's the problem with hope? Well, the problem with hope is, it, is that it, 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 it's an awful thing that tears people apart by keeping them imprisoned in the, the same condition they were in before without an understanding of history. So for me, going back to that, that quotation you began with, not the quotation from me, but the one, the one before, portals and such yeah. like, is that if the pandemic points anywhere, it points towards history. Mm. And history is, as we know, it's a slaughterhouse. It's catastrophe. It's violence. It's awful. But we forget it because it's just too unpleasant, if you like. But the, the pandemic, I think, gave us a, an inkling of, of, of history and the way history works on us. Firstly, by... Uh, forcing us into situations of solitude which were melancholic. So we're, we're experiencing a melancholy, a, a distance in that way, and then maybe feeling hypochondriac stuff and all of that. So a kind of sadness on the one hand, which is one way in which history pulls through us. The other side to this, fast forward to the killing of George Floyd and uh, New York in June 2020 and, and thereafter, we then switched 
very strangely from a melancholia to, to mania, right? Uh, and there was kind of a manic period uh, of, of the protest, of the movement, as it was called. And that was very interesting because there, you know, you see another window of history opening up. But what happens in the United States? Well, the United States is a country where black people get killed by the police. Of course, everybody knows that. Every black person knows that. That's the way it is. In their bones. Nothing new in that. This is old. This is, this is the oldest story uh, that's been told, that's told in this country. And somehow we can forget that. We can become amnesiacs about that. So to that extent, the pandemic is what is important in it is the way in which it opens up historical perspectives, right? both in terms of our melancholy and in terms of our mania. And it gets us to face that. Does it open anything up to the future? I don't think that's our concern. I'm largely against the future. <laughs> you know, it's probably not going to be good. But, but I'm, against the, I'm against the future. No, I'm against the future as... Because when people talk about the future, and I've been in academia, this has been, you know, I've seen waves and waves of this. People that think they've got the vision five years from now, 10 years from now, and they're going to sell that academically or whatever. And um, it's always wrong. It's always misguided. And it's usually pernicious and done for opportunistic, careeristic reasons. The only obligation that someone like me has, as someone who reads books and writes about them, is to cultivate a sense of history, right? cultivate historical sensibility. And to own that, to possess that in all of its complex, ambiguous movements, and we're still captured by that. And, mm -hmm. you know, the thing about history, and you know, Paul and I are the same age, and we came through a similar kind of intellectual formation. You know, there were certain things that we thought that maybe we were done with, that things that had improved, that it would be kind of unimaginable to have a national government predicated on explicit anti-Semitism, say. That was, that, that's gone, surely. No. No, you find, no, that's, that's not gone. So I think what the pandemic can teach us is to become proper students of history. And that, for me, slowing down and taking time is about that. And then the future will be informed by that. The future opens out of that, all right? Uh, if we inoculate ourselves against the past, if we think we're in some amazing point of his, historical transformation, and we've got the keys to the future, then I think we're in trouble. And what you're talking about is how we record history and how we access mm -hmm. it also, mm -hmm. because, you know, we can't presuppose to know what's happening. I 100% agree with you. Like, you know, a million things will change between now and dinner tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so even having an idea about the future in, in short terms is, is absurd. But what we can do is record a present moment enough to be able to access it later on. And part of how history was written and the, the Spanish flu and things is that it wasn't recorded in that moment. And there's this kind of truth to the, the, the moment itself and what happens in the space between two, three people, four people in conversation in the moment itself. And how can that be drawn on? The other thing to point out and what was a big part of this project was it's not talking about the moment itself. It's talking about the big picture in the moment yeah. itself. And I also think connected to history is the notion of collective memory and how we all kind of collectively come to remember. And so much of that is through storytelling, through dialogue. 
through conversation. I always think of that sociologist philosopher in France, Maurice Alvax, who wrote a book called On Collective Memory and, and talks brilliantly about what happens when a neighborhood is destroyed, uh, what disappears. But I think there is something so powerful in what Simon is saying. Um, that I want you to react to, and I want us to take the measure of it. I'm against the future. It's Walter Benjamin 101, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Angel of history faces you face backwards, and you feel the winds coming through. That's all you can do. That's messianic. And, believe, <laughs> and, and, and believing in some way, you know, believing in some way that this moment is a portal can be... A misguided idea. Mm -hmm. It's a misguided idea. You know, if Elon Musk is taking over space. <laughs> <laughs> Another whole thing that we, we talk a lot about in here is the climate crisis and what's going on in the environment. And I think when we talk about the future, <laughs> that's where this conversation should be. It's certainly one of the great fears now, you know, having children who are of an age where they are worried, they begin to understand a little bit about history. They understand that this planet is in jeopardy, right? And that, that certainly is one form of the future. But or the planet will be fine, whether it's hospitable to us is the question. But I, since you all know here that I'm a quotomaniac by profession. You had a great one today. I did. Wasn't it good? It was beautiful. It's beautiful, Benedetti, uh, Mario Benedetti. But now, let me read this to you, and, and perhaps you can even guess who it is from. The people hardened by the danger they had been in, like seamen after a storm is over, were more and more wicked and more and more stupid, more bold and hardened in their vices and immoralities than they were before. Now, this could be... Was that Camus? Was that... No, that's uh, Daniel Defoe. Huh. In journal 1722, hmm. in the Journal of the Plague Year, which is fictional... He didn't experience it. The bubonic plague was in 1665. Daniel then was five years old. And he wrote about the, the plague, imagined it, better than someone who actually had lived through it, namely Samuel Pepys. Mm. And um, I'm curious how you might react, because, you know, that kind of a statement is not particularly hopeful. Here we are at a moment now where we're wondering, and I think the book does an incredibly good job of that, wondering, you know, what good will come of this moment? And will good come of this moment? I think Daniel Defoe tells us, hmm, not so fast. People might become, you know, more selfish. Friday, what is it called? Uh, um, Friday after Thanksgiving. Black Friday. Black Friday was as black as usual. Yeah. As many shoppers. Have people become less interested in things? Not necessarily. Do they have, as you write so beautifully in the afterword of the book, a return to family life and an understanding of the rituals? Will that come of it? Maybe, maybe not. Never waste a good crisis comes up a lot. Never waste a good crisis comes up a lot. 
can't remember who said that. Randy Commissar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it's a real Silicon Valley term. And he comes from <laughs> that world. And, you know, Jobs famously said it. Many people have used that idea to never waste a good crisis. And two things came up. Eric Maskin uh, wrote, adversity is a good way to generate creative ideas, uh, which I believe is true. And Shirzeh Hushieri said, when you confront death, you understand life. So there are certain people within this book who were definitely thinking about the positive benefits from moments like this. Many people were. Will people change for the better? Probably not. In my opinion, I think when people go through experiences like this alone, they fall out of practice of the sort of generosity and sort of communal nature of being in life. I think that people's just regular social grace has kind of dipped down rather than um, gotten better over this time. Mm -hmm. We have behaviors that are informed by the practice that we're in. You take everyone out of all of these sort of social norms and they have trouble getting back to it, I think. Will people be awful in that way? Well, I don't know. I hope not. But I think people miss people. So I think that there's an inherent conflict within them in this time. They mm -hmm. might no, not know how to deal well with each other, but they miss being together. They don't remember what they miss, but they feel that something's not the same. Yeah. If we think about the one of the fundamental features of human society is plague. Right? There have been there have been periodic plagues, which have sometimes lasted hundreds of years. Makes and, a good metaphor, too. Yeah. And um, I mean, what's then changed? Well, I mean, from Defoe, I mean, Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which is sometimes thought of as the first novel, sometimes thought of as the first novel, I think by Ian Watts in The Rise of the Novel. You begin with Journal of the Plague Year, Mel Flanders, Robinson Crusoe, and off you go to Fielding and the rest, Fielding, Richardson. Yeah. So in a sense, there is a... There's a novelty at the level of the media with Defoe, right? Here's a novel written sometime later about something that maybe you remember, maybe you don't. We've gone through this plague. So plague is a consistent feature of human society, but we've gone through it with this new media, mm -hmm. right? With smartphones and all the rest, Zoom and all the rest. So that's different. That inclines things in a different way. How's that going to play out? I don't know. Right? The key is difference, because that's not connection. Back to Benjamin, this idea of a sort of equivalence or a difference in an actual conversation, a mediated conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is interesting to think if we were all weren't sitting in the same room, how would this conversation be different? We'd be checking our phones. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but even if the pandemic happened in let's say 2010, not 2020. Exactly. How different, or in 2000, how different it would question. have been. Well, I remember in the beginning we were going, okay, so all this talk about coordination, it was shocking to see technology's failure, while at the same time seeing how much it, it helped us mm -hmm. and brought people together, how much of the true utility of it failed us mm -hmm. in the moment when we needed coordination, when we needed insights that come from massive amounts of data, we really weren't getting much. No, the, we've talked a lot about the promises of big tech, and we found two guests who I think just captured it so well. Zephyr Teachout, who wrote a book, sort of anti-big tech book. Who's running for the Attorney General of New York right now. Mm -hmm. And Tristan Harris, of course, who has the Center for Humane Technology. So you look at it historically, I mean, it's, you know, I was reading recently 
for different reasons about print, print books, and what happens, uh, particularly the emergence the, of the, print the emergence of the print, the print book. and uh, Walter Ong and those kinds of people. Well, like like that in yeah. mind, but the yeah. idea that there was a here was a here was a media revolution. Books could be printed. The Bible could be made available in translation uh, to readers, and that that led to the Reformation, led to various other things. Those were also mechanisms of extraordinary inflammation, social inflammation, unrest, disorder, and so on and so forth. And I wonder about the kind of the transformation in media that we've gone through in a way that is too close for us to even make sense of. Yeah, the speed of it is impossible to so fast. unpack. And so here, we, and we just got on this raft, kind of drifting with, <laughs> with, our, with our smartphones. Yeah. This takes us, on the one hand, well, we're all connected, we can be in touch with family and friends, yes. On the other hand, it's, it's a mechanism for extraordinary social inflammation and a tendency towards things like culture wars, say, that were always implicit in a place like the United States have become maximized, right? And to the point where, you know, I remember, because I remember it, because I think I came in the studio the next day for that time-sensitive conversation. It was the night that Trump got COVID, right? And the, the White House had gone quiet. And, Very uh, quiet. And then it was announced, I don't know, I was listening to the radio and had my phone. It was three o'clock in the morning or something like that when the news came through, Trump's got COVID. And I did a kind of... Silly, I thought it would matter. Yeah, yeah. And there you are. And and is that so there they these are mechanisms of inflammation, of of rage, mm. also dissemination, information and and both things at once. How does one carry that? How what does one do with it? I don't know. And how you understand an event or a series of events or something through the day. I mean, when we spoke with you for At A Distance, I remember you talked about memes and the mm -hmm. role that memes were playing in the culture and how we were understanding what was happening in a lot of ways through humor and through memes. Yes. Well, the memes were the metaphors of our of our time, and yeah. metaphors crucial for understanding generally. Mm -hmm. You know, technology is optimized for speed and the attention economy, like you're mm -hmm. talking about media. And what the masters of the universe currently have not taken into account necessarily or, or acted on is what that does to a society. So when you, when you optimize for a specific function without considering where that function exists, you, you can very easily destroy a society, which is what we're at the brink of in many ways. And the yeah. masters of society you're referring to? You know, the table of like five or six people right now who are controlling pretty much the flow of information and, uh, and where Move our attention is going. Why not, right? Didn't that used to be the, yeah. the motto of Facebook? Move fast and break things. Optimize for speed, break things down, open things up. And the goal, the idea then was that engineering would lead to this idea of connection, sharing. And this, would, and this would bring down the state. It would bring down big government. And when you burn it down, you just create a virtual version of it. Meta. We'll just rebrand. <laughs> right. But, I, you know, I remember at the, at the New York Public Library when I had Jane Mayer at the library and, and I was talking to her and I asked her a question about the moment. And she said, I, I can't answer that question. I haven't checked Twitter recently. You know, I've been on stage with you. 
And so that brings me very closely to your enterprise here of the slowdown, which is so interesting to me because I, I truly believe uh, deeply in the long form. And I, I believe deeply that Benjamin was right when he quoted Paul Valéry in The Storyteller, when he says that modern man no longer works at what cannot be abbreviated, right? And here, in a sense, what you're trying to get to is get away from T.S. Eliot's notion of being distracted from distraction by distraction. You at 3 a.m. Mm. looking at mm. news about Trump getting COVID, you know, how do we sustain... Fist pumping on my own at night and going, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're all in the same boat, but how do we sustain in this attention economy, as you call it, which I know has now become such a, mm. a fashionable term, how do we sustain thought? These are questions... Incoherence, that, even incoherence. more than thought. I mean, I don't even have to think. I just want some sense of coherence. I think that we are in a very critical moment in time where our brains have been hijacked by an ad model. Right. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. Like at the end of the day. A really sticky ad model. A really good ad model. Mm -hmm. Being someone that has worked in that field and understands the mechanics of it, I can say that we are in a moment where a marketing effort has hijacked society. And, you know, this is not a new idea. Your friend Stiegler brought up the idea of standing reserve. Are we the product? Mm -hmm. Well, of course we are. And why did big tech do so well in the pandemic? Why was there so much money made with Amazon? was because there was an absolutely captive audience. So the attention was even easier to grab. And so what is the slowdown about? It's not anti-technology. It's not... Hardly. It's that I just want more from it, and I want to have a sense of agency in a world that's really weaponizing speed and attention against my ability to just function as a Concentrate thing. in yeah. any, any mm -hmm. form of fashion. To be present. Yeah, to be here. I mean, you were talking about the difference of being in touch with each other. Here's the idea in really clear terms for me where it comes from is that, you know, I experienced that shift. I'm 44, right? So I'm not, I'm not as, um, as, as ancient, as ancient. <laughs> not ancient, but I, I haven't experienced as much of the world as, as, as you or Simon. That's, but That's a very nice way of putting it, yes. But the reason I bring up my age is I experienced the shift. And I'm a very unique generation because of that. I had the before and after as I was coming up. So what I noticed, and as a young, like working creative, I noticed what happened to ideas when laptops and phones entered the situation. Ideas are incredibly fragile. People talk about that all the time. A provocation made or, or, or a word that can get dropped could become the next 10 years of what you guys do together out of that conversation. It's just so fragile. And, and ideas come out of conversation, ideas come out of communication. And the laptops and the phones and everything else is attacking that space. And so what's happening is 2% of the possible ideas that could occur aren't even being captured because no one's being present. 
because this other shit is in our face. What I find is that we don't think the ways we used to think. We don't talk the way we used to talk. We right. don't ideate the way we used to do that simply because of a hardware and a software proposition. That's really all it is. And of something of our own creation. So what? What's it? I mean, this is making me tremendously anxious. Um, Sorry, <laughs> I, I, it's all right. I mean, you know, nothing that I ten or twelve years of oddly compassing, oddly compassing. Me too. Yeah. Me too. A marketing strategy, a market is as, as hijack society. That's that's kind of a good summary of what's happened. So what's there to do? Well, to try and take note of how things have changed. I did this event on Saturday with Judith Butler, amongst other people. And Judith Butler, as a thinker, one of the things that has always interested me about her is that she writes sentences. <laughs> and she's syntactical. And uh, a sentence as a unit of thought. And in that sentence, there can be nuance. There can be three or four things going on at once. There's a thought. But the thought doesn't rest at one kind of Wikipedia definition or one statement or one word which you allegedly used or didn't use or whatever it might be. You're, you're, you're thinking through something, right? This is the, these are the longer forms that we have to cherish. This is what human beings do. And They provide an opportunity to be outside of the self. Yeah. To engage with something outside of you. Yeah. Which is what all of that is fighting against. Mm -hmm. It's pushing us back in. So what can be done, in a sense, is as simple as reading, slowing down, reading, allowing nuance, tolerating ambiguity. Yeah, Carlo, Carlo Ginsburg talks about slow reading yeah. and how tremendously important that movement is, you know, because slow food, of course, mm -hmm. emanated in some way from Italy. But he says, you know, okay, slow food, good, but slow reading. Mm. In a way, what will save us is philology. I like slow looking too. You know, the idea when you go into a museum, you don't just skip through 10 paintings. You stare at one painting for a really long time. And how would you look at this message? Because you, you've got this in the, the memorial book. There's, it's an argument, as I understand it, broadly against figuration, against figurative monuments in favor of abstract mm -hmm. monuments. So it's an argument for memorials, but an argument for abstraction. But when we're looking at something abstract, that's slowing us down the same way as reading, do you think, or is that? Yeah, because it's layered in nuance and metaphor. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I think that you would read, people call really good memorials very often like concrete poetry. It's sort of this idea of like the physical thing being a manifestation of some sort of poetry. And I think that that layering of the same way a poem has all these different lines and you can read into it in, in many different ways, the same experience you feel at a memorial. And that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> no, but what we're talking about is not a new idea. I mean, this is what yeah. Albers was talking about at Black Mountain, the idea of looking. Mm -hmm. This concept of actively doing one thing is really, really important. I mean... The bifurcation of our thought. There was, there was a guy named Cal Newport who we were obsessed with. But the, here's a guy who's made a complete argument for the fractured thought being just so dangerous for us mm. and sort of digital life. And he's, 
he's created a, a real argument for success and happiness outside of a digital existence and a sort of sense of agency and reading a physical book at night and, and these kinds the of things. The tactile inebriation yeah. it gives you. And we have to remember this is all fairly recent. I know. It, mm -hmm. it feels like it's been there for a long time, but, but it's it a hasn't. minute. But it hasn't. And we're the ones in control. Are we? Absolutely. As individuals, we're in control. And we feel, and it's easy for us to sort of equivocate around our behaviors and being a part of culture and a part of movement and a part of knowing. But in reality, we all make our own choices every day and we're not forced to be a part of this mess. In fact, by engaging in it, we're supporting it. Would you say that was true of a, say, 14-year-old? Absolutely. Yeah? I have one. Okay. <laughs> we were talking about this at dinner With Saturday night. Phone. Oh, yeah. Okay. What gives me, talk about hope, I hope you don't gag, but what gives me a lot of hope... Speak quickly. Is, speak is, quickly. Yeah, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get through it quickly. What gives me a lot of hope is that <laughs> watching my own kids yeah. who don't feel the same way, in fact, they're like, oh, God, my lame parents on Instagram. Like, that's like something your uncool parents do. The communications they do uh, disappear immediately on Snapchat. There's no record of it. The engagements with each other are generally FaceTime. So when we used to stay up all night talking on the phone in high school, that's not how they do it now. They're on a group FaceTime. There's five or six of them that want to see each other when they're talking. Mm -hmm. So they're using technology to engage deeper with each other rather than sort of hide behind the veil of it. When you were talking about the notion of a singular attention, I, I always think back to, you know, one of Kierkegaard's most famous statements that purity of heart is to will one thing. Exactly. And, and, and the need for that, the need to return to that. And there's one moment in the book that moved me very deeply. And I want to investigate it in a deeper way, in a slower way, in the contribution of Alexander Rose. He quotes Jonas Salk as saying, are we being good ancestors? Mm -hmm. And I wonder what that means. It means a lot of things to me, but I wonder what it means to you. I immediately think of indigenous culture when I hear that quote and think about how much is forgotten when we don't think about our indigenous past and how mm -hmm. important it is to acknowledge the land we're on, where we, where we step, who came before us. So not just our literal ancestors, our blood ancestors, but humanity. That's where I think when I hear that quote. I mean, I think looking forward, the idea of the sort of seven generations idea and making choices not for this moment, but for the moments that, that, that go much further, we should be asking ourselves these questions and we should be making the choices on every level based on what we're setting up for the future. But these all seem like kind of highfalutin, hard to understand, almost like virtue signaling around it. Yeah. What does that actually mean in real terms? Right. Because we have a lot of this recognition and and jargon around it. Mm -hmm. But what does it actually mean when we begin to make choices that are actually not better for us necessarily, but better for the future, which is the quote you're really talking about. And it doesn't really relate to climate, although on some levels it does. It has to do with basic human relationships. I think it happens on a very small scale. It doesn't happen in a big way. 
I think it happens with if you're a parent, how you're raising your children mm -hmm. and what what you're sharing with them and how honest you're being with them about the realities of the world around them and who they are. But it has to do with are we taking care of each other in this moment because this moment makes the next moment makes the next moment. So I think it's actually much more present. It's hard to think about these ideas, you know, that I'm going to make choices that are better seven generations ahead. To your point about the future, how do we make choices properly for a future that isn't real? Yeah. And, and that certainly can't be based on the, the presupposition we make right now. So what we actually know is this moment in time. And the way no. that we behave in this moment in time right now is how we're being good ancestors. Mm. And I think that the, the complication there for many is this responsibility that's so much bigger than an individual that's so like sort of political in a way. It has to do with interpersonal relationships in this moment. Mm. What we need to do is in this moment in time, care for each other in a real way. In a tender way. Exactly. And bring a certain sensitivity to it. I'd immediately think of this idea of like standing on your toes and, and not being stuck so far in the past. You don't have so much weight back, but you're also not too far forward. It's finding that balance. How do you find that balance? It gets lost in the blah, blah, blah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times <laughs> I have worked with or dealt with these people that, that, that we revere and the behavior around them was despicable. The dragons surrounding them, the interpersonal, the moment to moment. And I think that what we've lost in this jargon of just bullshit yes. is each other in this moment in time <laughs> right here, because that's also actually all you can control. Mm -hmm. You know, Willie Nelson, I interviewed him once, had the, the best thing to say. He goes, you know, I was in the Air Force and we had this uh, rule that, you know, you take care of your own area. And, you know, you take care of the five feet around you or whatever. And if everyone takes care of their own area, we'll all be okay. I hope that's what we move forward with. The virtue signaling is a good point because mm -hmm. it's, I was reading this Substack post last week by, who's that guy, Freddie DeBoer? It was interesting. He said, you know, where are we with, where are we with social justice, you know? Where are we with this? And he, his hypothesis is that social justice and all the forces of goodness and all that nice stuff isn't going to lose to the forces of reaction and conservatism. It's going to lose to the fact that we're exhausted by it. Exactly. We're exhausted by its bullshit. We're exhausted by its hypocrisy. It's evident hypocrisy. And so I think that we have to be good answers. I'm not sure. Okay. I'll take it in a slightly different direction. It would be that I think what the pandemic did and what at a distance is a record of is that it's a record of what was revived in the pandemic, which were things that were really archaic. Yes. Ancestral in that sense, archaic stuff, deep stuff that we don't really understand, that we're terrified, that we're, our bodies do weird stuff often, that there's a kind of archaic quality to, to us for as much as we might think that we're these bright new things with the, these new toys and off we go into the future, you know, to sort things out. No, we are, we're riveted to a past that we do not really begin to really understand. And that can revive in a terrifying archaism on the one hand. On the other hand, here's the upside. The place that other people have for hope for me, it's music. That in the pandemic, music played a very important role for me and for people that I was with. And 
if you could listen to something together or just be have the idea and you could tune into something that was deep or that, I don't know, that Nick Cave gig at the Alexandra Palace, Idiot Prayer, something like that. Or, you know, there were, there were lots of other things. Or just that you would, you would go back to something that really matters to you as a piece of music. And what is being revived in that? You know, it could be all sorts of complicated mm. stuff. But when you're gripped by that music, yeah. then, then life's okay. Well, you're also talking about integration. Immersion. Mm -hmm. Immersion also. My earliest memory of the pandemic actually was, it might have been the first night of lockdown, first or second night. I was sitting alone in my apartment watching the Philadelphia Orchestra play to an empty... Or the man I interviewed in Barcelona, one of the only interviews I did on the quarantine tapes in Spanish, who put together... 2,282 plants in the big uh, symphony space in Barcelona mm. and a quartet played to it. Beautiful. Played to the plants. Or Yo-Yo Ma on YouTube, you know, mm -hmm. playing to 10 million people, the Bach Sonata. The people in uh, Milan singing Milan opera singing, singing from their, their balconies. From their balcony. And what we're talking about there, which is so important, right, which is a reason... Well, different bits of music. I'm, be, I'm talking more about kind of the early fall and... But what you're talking about is... is uh, I mean, it's nearly, nearly, a, yeah. nearly a hopeful uh, comment, yeah. which is the possibility, um, which you talk about in your afterwards too, and you too, is the possibility of re-emergence, of re-immersing yourself. With, in, with integration. Anyone ever goes to a therapist after a trauma, they're going to talk about how it's as if life didn't exist before that. And, and their mm -hmm. job is to integrate you as a complete person, the full self from the beginning. And it's interesting to think about that as a species. You know, how are we integrated for the full species? You know, we keep these Paleolithic hand axes there for a reason. <laughs> they remind us oh, yeah. that there were tools before this that nobody left the house without that we were tied to in our hand. You ever, if you're ever in any natural history museum, the mannequin of the caveman is always carrying a Paleolithic hand axe. And this was everything, this was the tool. And not that much has changed in many ways. I think, you know, our friend Christian talks about this. He fights against this Silicon Valley idea that, you know, we're presenting this today and everything will change. Christian Madsberg. Madsberg, yeah. A good friend of ours. Mm -hmm. Th this idea that, well, how much has really changed? And, you know, we were speaking to a, a dear friend the other day, Mark Keane, for, for At A Distance, who's a brilliant landscape designer, lives in Kyoto. And we said, how's the pandemic? And he goes, Kyoto is a story of pandemics and destruction. This is not new to us. We understand this. So asking, you know, in closing, sadly, might I say, um, asking, asking from you the question you ask to all your guests. Hard to ask it to Simon, obviously, but asking it first to both of you, how would you answer it? Well, I'll, I'll cheat because I, I end the afterword that I, that I write in the book is effectively saying, yeah, for me, my greatest hope is the podcast itself. And I guess I could expand on that a little Dude. bit in saying that it's not just what Andrew and I selfishly have gotten out of it, which has been incredible, being able to have these conversations with all these visionaries, but also 
I would hope with the people reading the book or listening to each episode get to experience too. And it kind of goes back to the music thing, which is this sort of resonant frequency. I love the feeling of being in that interview when you have that spine tingly moment. You have that moment of like something happened. Maybe I can't quite articulate what happened. You usually can't. Actually, I can think of an episode... I was grocery shopping early in the pandemic with my mask on, listening to you interview Roseanne Cash. And it was one of the most incredible episodes the I've day, ever heard. The day after John Prine and Hal Wilner died and such When you raw... said no, no feeling is final. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. Rilke. You said that to her. I did. I forgot. You see, that's another that's another aspect of talking is that you forget what you say, but something has emerged. And good conversation, one might say, Adam Phillips speaks about that all the time, is you actually don't know where you're going. Mm-hmm. Something is happening. Well, I think that's also the act of being present. You have to listen. If, if you're remembering everything you're saying, you're not being present. So, so your act of hope here is... That through dialogue in its broadest sense, yeah, there can be these these shards of what what Sholem talks about when he talks about shards of hope, in some way. I, I can. See what's great is to see. Um, for, for those people <laughs> who can't quite see it, is um, I think he should be next for that reason. Simon, <laughs> Simon is sort of going from one side to the other, sort of saying, "Well, I don't know." if I feel very uncomfortable or just terribly uncomfortable. I mean, it's funny because Simon is, is, I think of you as an incredibly optimistic person. Yeah, (laughs) he is. I mean, day to day. You love comedy like me, which to me is like the highest art form. And, and, and the most important thing for me, I would take stand up comedy over music. If I had to choose, if I had to, tough call. It's a tough call. If I had Mm -hmm. to though, I think I would. What does it do? What does comedy do? It it helps me get over myself when you're yeah. listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. Crushes the ego because it takes you to a certain place that you think is a little too far for yourself, and then it takes you further. Which is another thing that is so interesting. In reading this book as, as a whole, which I, I did in the last few days, which I really recommend to everybody who picks up this book, is to actually read it from beginning to end. It's chronological. Every entrance says when you spoke to them, where, and their time, which is also really interesting. There is this this getting over yourself. There is a lot about meditation. There are themes that emerge and re-emerge again and again, but I feel I interrupted you. No, you didn't interrupt. I mean, one more note about the book that, that we really love about it. There's a couple things about it we should say. One, it's beautifully designed. Gorgeous. David Meredith, a collaborator of ours for many, many years, uh, just a beautiful human who has taught me so much. And of all the people that I've gotten to creatively collaborate with over time, there's something about working with David that is always surprising and always gentle and always uh, an incredible outcome because of that. It's Mm -hmm. because of who he is as a person. So I wanted to start with that secondarily to that we have an incredible team that built it with us. Tiffany Zhao, Lila Allen, Mike Lala. Pat McCusker. Pat McCusker, who <laughs> recorded, who was with us the whole time, who's recording the session now, who didn't speak in the podcast, but was a part of that conversation, which was really beautiful. And made it sound so good. <laughs> there were many days I was jealous of him 
getting to listen rather than having to actually <laughs> He might have learned more than we did, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about the annotation, which is that as you move through the book chronologically, there's a kind of fun to reading something. Fabulous footnotes. Yeah, and to read something and go, God, they didn't know that this was about to happen mm -hmm. the next day, the next week. Mm -hmm. This is what they knew at that moment. And on the left-hand side of the page, something that we, we tried to do in this book and, and we've tried to do in everything that we've been making here at The Slowdown is, is change the form a little bit. But Try to make a formal element that functionally changes the experience of it. And in this case, it was annotation. So there's only one color in the book, which is pink. And these little pink numbers that, that, that you see as you're reading and you move to the left-hand side of the page. And there's this original text that was written that helps you understand the full moment. So if Bill McKibben talks about the Kung flu or the China virus, you actually get taken through the whole etymology of that term and where it was used. How Trump weaponized or, it. Or Simon Critchley saying, you know, I've been watching a lot of stand-up lately. There's a kind of disconnect between the official language, the New York Times updates, and all the rest, which are very serious and important. And this underground circulation of memes where people are letting off steam. And then a little pink note. One, <laughs> uh -huh. serious. Let me read the footnote. I don't have to go to the back. I don't have to go to the bottom. But I go to a separate page. And there's a, a beauty in the way a page can nearly be blank. There's just one and two footnotes on that page. The page, beautiful paper, pink footnote. And the pink footnote says, in 2020, people spent more time online than ever before, producing a wealth of memes that reflected the moods of the moment. Among the most memorable creations were my plans, 2020, a side-by-side -side comparison of two images that reflected each category. Potato Boss, a still from a Microsoft Teams meeting at which a department head couldn't figure out how to turn off a filter that turned her face into a potato. Michael Jordan looking at his iPad, a still from ESPN, documentary series Last Dance that premiered in April, and Central Park Karen, a video of a white woman, Amy Cooper, who called the police on a black man, Christian Cooper, no relation, who was birdwatching in Central Park in May, the image of Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, shown ripping up a transcript of President Donald Trump's State of the Union speech in February, was also unforgettable in Anmimurzi. And the whole book has, has these kinds of annotations, which reminded me a little bit of, you know, Diderot's encyclopedia and cross-references. And portal back into time. History back into time and history forward. For me, it's like very much about culture, history, and society on the left-hand page. And then the big picture on the right. It's all the stuff, all the forces that were pushing on these moments that they were talking. And, and that I found to be like the most exciting part of the book and where we began to find an actual functional way to practice what we think is missing. And I, I would hope that in anything, this book, our, our website, anything we make, people experience a deeper reading similar to how everything you work on, Paul, is about a deeper reading, about nuance. Taking time, taking time, take your time. We talk about slowing down and how do you slow down and one of the ways and why we made the book look the way it is, is because you need a seductive, often aesthetic convention mm -hmm. to get people to slow down. 
I also must say the the images that are included that are yours, Andrew, are really interesting. I mean, Would it's you call really... it an auction, NASA auction? They're not entirely mine, I should no, say. No, I know. I made them. There's a little story around it, but which I'll get to, but but the idea of of slowing down long enough to engage with something is something I've been practicing for a long time when I make photographs. This sort of aesthetic surface that you're forced to look at for a second. You, what is that? Mm -hmm. And then once you're there, I got you and I can talk to you. Yeah. I can I can tell you something. I can make my argument. The same with this book. I wanted this pink block that's super optimistic and beautiful that's sitting there calling you saying, pick me up. The center of the book where there's a paper change, the portfolio in the center is a body of work that I started working on maybe five years ago, really just completed in the last kind of year. I would buy duplicate negatives at auction, these space auctions. And uh, there, were, there would be NASA cartographers or people who worked at NASA who somehow left at some point with a duplicate negative. I would take that and I thought, well, that's mine. I mean, it was all of ours, NASA, we paid for, right? So I would take it and, and wanting to engage with it in some real way. So I would actually photograph the negative. It's not a scan, but it's photographed. And then when it's digitized through that photograph, it's then overpainted digitally and, huh. and recontextualized and changed in many, many ways. So the truth of the image is irrelevant. What it is is an experience of the earth. Feeling. And a feeling about the earth that I was going for with material that we've seen. We've all seen the earth rise, which this ends on. But I wanted to kind of uh, have my own version of it. I wanted to see it differently than how we maybe had broadly experienced it. So I'd shown these pictures a couple times, but never really formalized them. But at the beginning of this project, we were thinking about Whole Earth Catalog, and we were thinking about what Stuart Brand did by making the Earth visible and making us think about that in a certain way and how powerful that was, which is a lot of where the, the, the sort of brand package for the podcast came out of. It was based on a Whole Earth Catalog. And then it was just very fitting that we gave you a break in the middle of the book to sequentially go through shots of the earth that were made over many Apollo missions that bring you closer and then further away. What I want to get to there is you get the, in the, in the book, there's a, you know, let's say a meditation on, on the earth, but an earth is completely stylized, right? This isn't a natural depiction. This is a stylization. Uh, which I want to take back, at least in my mind, to the Paleolithic tools. You know, these people, our ancestors back then, they were styling things. Absolutely. Excessive mm. things. I mean, mm. prosthetic devices they carry around with them. That fit your hand. When you hold one of those, you know that it was made to fit your hand because it fits perfectly. Mm -hmm. yeah. This isn't related to what we're talking about, but it's important, which is um, one thing that I hope has come out of the pandemic is a, a kind of interest in our archaeology, in our kind of Neolithic background. That if we think about who our ancestors were, our ancestors were doing really complicated technical stuff and they were taking enormous care to create extraordinary artifice, right? Extraordinary acts of artifice. And then they were wearing the most crazy wild outfits to go with them and they were covering their faces with makeup and they were involved in complex rituals and speaking in languages we don't understand and that was us just a few seconds ago and, uh, and we're that too and so when I listen to music 
you know, when I'm saying something archaic is going on there, one of the things I did in the last year was really get into uh, early country music, mm. you know, Carter family and right back there. And you feel something deep. There's something really, you learn something about this place. It's Absolutely. not pleasant. <laughs> but it's, it's deep and it's powerful and it resounds. And that's, um, if there's that, then there's, there's something. Just on that, it's so interesting. I was in a conversation recently about someone explaining the Old Testament to me as a book of accounting, you know, and this is really about measurements and numbers. Yeah. And, um, you know, you go through it and, and, and there are whole moments where, where it's, it's, about, it's about the rules of measurement and, and how you do things. We're not that different. We live in a moment right now of accounting. Yeah. And we are way more connected to who we've been for thousands of years than who we are in the last 15 with technology. Yeah. I mean, that's deep and that's important. One person I was reading in the last year was Mary Douglas, mm. and she's obsessed with... Purity and danger. The diet, impurity and danger, one of her great books, the dietary restrictions of the Jewish people as recorded in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which are absurd when you read them. They go on for pages and pages. You need this and not this. If it crawls, it's got this kind of hoof. And that level of detail is, is, is bewildering. And, um, but we're that. We're and, exactly that. And our obligation, in a way, is to keep the records. Right? Exactly. To keep an archive. And this is, the book is a, the book is a record. That's right. Well, I, I have to say on that, for the record, I want to, to thank Simon Critchley and Spencer Bailey and Andrew Zuckerman and the crew here for, for this moment where I think we, we were able to unpack some of the beauties of this book and talk about ways in which we might be able if we try, because we have agency, to slow down. Thank you. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com support. 